Welcome to Teaching Artist Podcast, a show dedicated to discussions of teaching art to kids, making art, and how those things overlap and feed each other. I'm Rebecca Potts, your host, a visual arts teaching artist. week I'm sharing a featured artist as well as a guest interview. I'll share a bit about the featured artist here as well as sharing images of their work on Instagram and on the website. This week's featured artist is Erin Friedman. Erin is an abstract artist based just outside of Washington DC in Bethesda, Maryland. She has always been captivated by the experience and process of creating. Erin's love of painting since childhood led her to study art in college at the University of Maryland. She graduated with a BFA in painting and a concentration in design. She gradually refined her process and found her niche in abstract mixed-media work. Erin's goal is to make people feel deeply when they see her work. Her inspiration comes from moments and reactions to everyday life experiences. Emotions have a great impact on her work and influence her paintings in a variety of ways. She believes in embracing these feelings and allowing them to become a part of her creative process. As her style continues to evolve, her process remains as intimate as ever. She brings her personality as a sensitive and empathetic truth seeker to every blank canvas. Each piece is deeply personal. Erin's work is free from formal structure and open to interpretation, a style that she hopes causes viewers to think about what the piece means to them. Before pursuing her art full-time, Erin spent over a decade working as a graphic illustrator, where her clients included Warner Brothers, Mars Retail, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the Smithsonian Institution, and the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Working for internationally recognized brands taught Erin the importance of providing an excellent experience for clients. When she is not creating, Erin is chasing after her three energetic young children, Max, Silas, and Ozzy. And a bit from her statement, Erin says she is fueled by her art, which has been pouring out of her since childhood. When she paints, she is fully immersed in the work. Nothing inspires her more than the complexity of emotions. She aims to capture the essence of the human experience in her work. We all experience conflict, change, joy, and sadness. Erin does her best to embrace this process and allow those feelings to be revealed throughout her work. Her paintings are created by pouring mixed acrylic onto a canvas and then building layers with paint using a palette knife. She makes marks, alters her ideas, adds layers, and changes directions. Some pieces include marks from charcoal or wax pastel. The final images are free from formal structure and open to interpretation. Each piece is deeply personal, centered around embracing everything she feels and the connection that comes from our shared emotions. To see some of Erin's work, check out our blog at teachingartistpodcast.com or make sure you're following us on Instagram at teachingartistpodcast. 
And if you would like to submit your work to be featured, you can do that on our website at teachingartistpodcast.com slash opportunities. Speaking with Jess was so inspiring and educational for me. I learned from her and tried to soak up her way of being with her students, with her body, within liminal space. She talked about her experiences at the intersection of many identities and how that has shaped her as a teacher, as an artist, and as a human. She shared some incredible dialogical investigations she's facilitated with students, digging into deep questions about time, fear, and love. We got into the systems of oppression and how we as teachers can create change. I loved her way of talking about teachers as the buffer between the systems of power and our students. We can break the rules and be a protective barrier for our students. This was such a powerful and helpful conversation. Jess Rogowski is a San Diego-based artist and educator from Chicago, Illinois, who currently works with students from Southeast San Diego and Baja, California, Mexico. Her practice as an artist explores the connections between art and revolution. The portals she creates, often made collaboratively, stand simultaneously as symbols of her own journey of self-healing as well as the collective decolonial healing needed to change the world. She aims to answer the questions, what life lessons can we learn as individuals and as society from the metaphor of a portal? How can we embrace liminality as a tool of resistance in a binary world? And how can imagination be a form of resistance? Her approach to art education centers student voice and well-being through dialogue and community, challenging the expectations of and hierarchies within the classroom. She invites her art students to consider their inner and outer landscapes through mindfulness practices and self-exploration, in addition to observing and interpreting contemporary art and culture. The students are encouraged to critically examine the social and historical realities and systems that impact them as individuals as well as their communities, including the institution of school itself. She is invested in co-creating expressive art experiences with students to question and investigate personal culture as well as society through art and action. Now more than ever, we need students to be able to creatively and critically think about solutions for our world and to act on them. Let's hear from Jess. I am speaking with Jess Rogowski today, and I love to just start with some background. Could you kind of walk us through your journey as an artist and an educator? Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So yes, my name is Jess Rogowski, and I'm a San Diego-based artist and educator from Chicago, Illinois, who currently works with students from Southeast San Diego and Baja California. Mm-hmm. In terms of the, you know, the big old origin story. Yes. <laughs> here we go. Well, I, I feel what's maybe a little, I don't know, interesting about my story is that right from the get-go, I kind of was sort of put towards more of the teaching side. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Mm -hmm. One of them, I would say, 
definitely coming from a, a working middle class background is when I told my mom, you know, when I was 18, like, what do you want to be? And I was like, an artist. And she said, absolutely not. Uh, yeah. How, how are you going to make money was her first, uh, her first concern. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of working middle class folks, I had to basically, you know, if I wanted college, I had to take out loans, right? And mm-hmm. my mom refused to co-sign on my student loan if I were to go with just a studio art major. So oh. It became a compromise for sure, where I ended up going to the University of Illinois at Chicago, and they have a art education program. So you can go in straight for your BFA. Actually, I don't think the program exists anymore. I know some of the professors have moved to other universities, SAIC, the School of the Art Institute being one of them. Yeah. So yeah, so I ended up at the time electing to be an art teacher from the get-go as a sort of a like I mentioned, a compromise between my mom. And <laughs> it was definitely begrudgingly that I agreed, but I, I was 18. I wanted to get out of the house. And so, you know, the way that the program I attended works is that you you take your art classes, you have studio classes, and then like many teacher prepar- uh, preparation programs, right? Then take education classes. And then your senior thesis ends up being a student show mm-hmm. of your of your students' artwork which is really interesting because I kind of trace back my beliefs about what an artist is and who gets to be one and just sort of the understanding of the term through little bits and pieces like this. Like when I'm saying this now, I wonder if I would have been in a different place in my journey if then I was given a show for my own art at the time, Mm. in addition to a final show of my students' art. Mm. Because I feel like a lot of teacher preparation programs, particularly the ones that are preparing art teachers to go out into the field, you know, how your teacher education program really affects your understanding of these terms and these different roles we we Mm -hmm. hold as teachers and artists and teaching artists. There are some programs that do give more legitimacy to your own practice as an artist through things like having a a final show, Mm -hmm. right? At the end of graduation. Yeah, it was an incredible experience. I had the opportunity to work with Olivia Goody through her Spiral Workshop, which is essentially a Saturday school run for Chicago public school students. And it's taught by pre-service teachers in collaboration with Olivia Goody. And I must say so much of my pedagogy and and understanding and philosophy as a teacher comes from that experience and my teacher preparation program. And what's interesting is that, you know, kind of reflecting back and thinking about later on in my career, kind of stepping into my role as an artist, looking back, I had more of a separated view of like what my teaching practice was versus, you know, what my art was. Mm -hmm. And I think now when I think about my upbringing and my own education, I I have this feeling that teachers are conceptual artists <laughs> in and of themselves, you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, you kind of think about what is a conceptual artist, but someone who creates experiences through activities or tasks and events. Mm-hmm. And I think as a teacher, like, that's what I do. <laughs> yeah. So it's interesting thinking about my label or what I am, but I think I've gotten to a point where when I introduce myself and talk about myself, I'm very confident in saying like, hi, I'm Jess Rogowski and I'm an artist. Mm-hmm. And leaving it at that because, like I'd mentioned before, curriculum development is an art form. 
in my mind. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I love that. And thinking through how the preparation programs prepare you or don't, (laughs) and what impact that has to say, okay, you've spent four years or however long studying this and working towards this degree, and your sort of culmination of all of it is show the work that your students have done mm-hmm. and none of the work that you have done. Although, you know, there's work that you've done tied up in that, in what your students have done. But you're right that that it sort of sets this precedent and this idea that your own artistic voice, your own art is not as worthy. Right. Because it's, yeah, it's so interrelated, I guess. Mm-hmm. And going back to at first being very resentful at <laughs> And having to be, you know, an art teacher to be able to afford to go to school, I began to love it. You know, I fell in love with working with young people, being the pulse of the future. I'm so continually inspired by my students. And that speaks back to the interrelationship of these titles, of these roles that we hold space for. Mm-hmm. And I just want to also throw out my appreciation for for you and creating a, a place for stories to be told. I think that's so important. Mm-hmm for the field and for progress. So thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. Already. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I feel like I started not really realizing what impact it could have and the importance of exactly what you said, just sharing these stories and these experiences really more (laughs) sort of selfishly, like I want to not be alone in juggling these things and trying to figure out like, who am I as an artist? Who am I as a teacher? Where do those things come together? I think that's a question I've been asking myself my whole <laughs> life. Who am I? What What mm. is happening here? And what should I do? And where am I going? Mm-hmm. You know, that, that quest for meaning. And it's interesting, as I've gotten older, I've really, as a mixed person, as a bisexual and as a person who held space for these two roles, opposing roles sometimes, mm-hmm. artist versus teacher, I feel like I've had to really maybe ask myself that question more than your average person mm-hmm. because of how my identity in and of itself has so many intersections of different groups and people. I mean, I think about artist teacher too, you know, coming from a working middle class background, I've always had to have that idea of like, how am I going to survive <laughs> in the background? And I've had to have a lot of second jobs and what do they call them these days? Side hustles. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I think this year actually is the first year that I'm going to have one of those as people in the teaching profession so often get this gets thrown around a lot. I feel like, oh, that cushy summer off, mm. you know, here we go. But I've had to maintain a second job my entire seven years as a teacher, mm-hmm. working in uh, food service and retail and different t- sort of ways to, to be honest, keep paying that student loan that I'm still right. talking away for. Uh. And I think the assumption is that to be an artist, you, you know, and this is in my experience with working in these sort of other industries is that you meet some of the most creative people. Mm-hmm. So many artists work in in service jobs. I've met and connected and networked with so many creatives mm-hmm. in the service industry, just coming from my particular background. And then, you know, on the other side of it, right, it's like the teacher, which in society has, I feel like maintained some sort of respect, maybe in some more so in other cultures than, than <laughs> not. But it's like, oh, you're a teacher, you know, and I'm sure maybe you, you might 
experience this when you introduce yourself just as new friends or acquaintances or whatnot. And you can either say, hi, hi, I'm an artist or hey, I'm a teacher. Mm -hmm. And that comes the whole set of preconceived notions and assumptions as to what that is. And often, sometimes it guides their behavior and how much they respect you. Mm -hmm. Like when you're wearing an apron versus Mm -hmm. when people see you in the classroom, it's very fascinating to me. Mm -hmm. Just the disparity sometimes that comes out and it's actually really harmful too but completely in order not to be really truly bothered by it you have to kind of detach yourself in considering these notions and my position as someone who's had my feet in a lot of different worlds I can yeah oh that's so true it's interesting because it like I think of the way I introduce myself and exactly what you're saying what identity do I choose to share and mm-hmm. knowing how that's going to affect the reaction and the respect that teachers, I mean, I guess, yes, we do get a certain level of respect, but then it's it feels almost cushioned with this sort of, you know, those who teach can't do. And mm-hmm. sometimes, it, yes, I know what you're talking about in the art, in the art world, but mm-hmm. we have to be careful to talk about like, well, what art world, right? Because inherently, a lot of times, the art world is a very classist space. Oh, totally. Classist, sexist, racist. Absolutely. All the ists. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what do we even concern ourselves with? Mm -hmm. Really, but tapping into that question, who am I and being grounded in, Mm. even although having my feet in many worlds or two worlds, if you will, Mm. you know, you create your own space like that, that third space. Mm -hmm. Uh. I love that. There's power in that. Yeah, completely. Yeah. And I love also what you were talking about with the service industry, just the really complete lack of respect that people that make that choice or, you know, out of necessity are in that industry. But talking about creatives, I feel like there's so many artists who decide, like, I don't want to go into education. I'm going to do a job that I can really, really just leave at the door and be able to focus on my art. And that's, I mean, I respect that choice completely. (laughs) And it's, uh, well, I mean, it's tragic, the amount of disrespect that people in this service industry experience. And I've seen it in loved ones, families, friends, myself. Mm -hmm. I'm currently in San Diego and I'm from Chicago. And it's interesting because historically there's been a lot of segregation and Mm -hmm. you see it all over the country. There's this coded language about the north side versus the south side in Chicago mm-hmm. and in San Diego. It's like everyone knows when you talk about La Jolla, what kind of maybe mentality sometimes is facilitated through the isolation and segregation of certain mm. social classes, really, in my mind. And anyway, that, it, you know, I worked at a fancy organic grocery store. And that's often in these public spaces where the classes rub up against each other. Mm-hmm. You know, someone's going and buying their their... not to sound bitter but like because I understand like people have food sensitivities and all that stuff you know but they're gluten-free vegan bread yeah and has asked someone behind the counter hi can you slice this please for me and just the amount of like dehumanizing that happens sometimes from Mm. from one end to the other and like you see that in places like the grocery store Mm-hmm. And, and being on that other side wearing the apron you know you see incredible human beings just reduced to something that's mm-hmm. not human when it's so mm-hmm. unfortunate there's so many musicians there's so many photographers painters raft riders with so much mm-hmm. how do I say this I feel like there is this 
sometimes assumption that if you're in a service job, you're less than from some people, right? And it's like, no, these people are totally misinformed when it comes to who's the human behind the apron, right? And, and what they have to offer and what they're doing. Like, not everyone has a choice to not work and just focus on their art, right? Some people have yeah. to survive, pay rent, pay the bills. And it's just so interesting. That's something that's always been a part of my journey as someone who's had to have more than one job since I've been 19 years old. Yeah. And do you feel like that influences the way you connect with students and the way you kind of like it comes into your teaching? I mean, in some respects, I guess that makes me more empathetic and understanding to mm -hmm. a lot of like being of the same class as the students that you're serving. Mm -hmm. In a certain way, like you understand like what parents and community members are going through. Whereas so often I've seen working in communities that have been historically oppressed and are experiencing the grips of and consequences of poverty at large systemically. Yeah. yeah. You know, there's this white saviorism where we're well-educated, privileged white folk come in to teach in certain communities and they're very removed mm -hmm. from the experiences of their students' lives in the way that they've never had to experience certain mm -hmm. things. And in a way, I am entirely privileged and don't understand the experiences of my students being that, I mean, I have students where their basic human needs are not being met. Primarily, my teaching experience has been in the public school system from the get-go. I worked mm -hmm. for Chicago Public Schools. I worked for a year in Marietta Valley Unified as well as San Diego Unified since 2018. Mm -hmm. And let me tell you, working for the public school system, it inspires a lot of rage. Mm. <laughs> it does yeah. just to see the injustices happening from the educational system as another colonial system that works to harm and oppress students of color. Yes, yes, absolutely. Ugh, yeah. And just seeing even within one system, the crazy inequities that are happening across from neighborhood to neighborhood. And oh, you know, it's, you, it's wild. Yeah, you talked about earlier how like these sort of dividing lines that happen in really in every city, every town. And, you know, you see that within all the systems too. like, where is the funding going? And it's all about money. It, it's like we've been commodified, if that's not already apparent. <laughs> and I feel like working for a public system, whether you're in healthcare or in a lot of different capacities, mm. you open your eyes to the fact that it's a money game. Mm. And this kind of, I don't know if this is, <laughs> if I'm jumping too much or getting off topic, but since this is the Teaching Artist podcast, I'd love to hear your opinion on this too. But in terms of like, if we're thinking about the public school system and art education and workers' rights, mm. do you see the increase of part-time unbenefited teaching mm. artist positions in public schools as undermining the art teaching profession? I mean, I think it's really, really complicated. Like there's, yeah, I'm incredibly frustrated at the really systemic lack of art education, this idea that it's not necessary, that it's not worthy of funding, that, 
yeah, teachers in general having to really fight for their rights as workers, fight to unionize and, you know, do strike repeatedly to have decent working hours for not only themselves, but their students as well. Strike like here in Los Angeles, we had a strike maybe a few years ago and a big sticking point was we need counselors in every school. This is not about, you know, I want more days off. This is my students desperately need someone to speak to about these major issues in their lives and it's not being provided. And I'm not trained as a counselor, as a teacher. <laughs> like we need trained mm-hmm. professionals. Teachers are often vilified. Right, completely. There's sort of that side of it. But then I also, I'm a teaching artist. So I work for a nonprofit that sends artists into schools and I'm not certified. And I feel like, there's some benefits to that. Like I have a lot of freedom in in terms of my curricula and even my sort of hours are more flexible a little bit. I don't have to do all the grading, <laughs> which is kind of nice. But then it's also like, how am I making a living on this? It's, you know, I don't think I would be able to without a partner, a spouse who's making a lot more than I am mm-hmm. or, you know, before COVID. <laughs> that sort of shifted everything. but And that's so, you know, it's so fascinating to me because I was never officially a teaching artist through the capacity of working in the public schools, but I mm-hmm. did experience something close to that. And it was, it's called visiting teacher. And before mm-hmm. I landed a temporary one-year contract with San Diego Unified, I was able to have this position called visiting teacher. And technically you were listed as part-time, mm-hmm. but you had the ability to like pick up more hours. Mm-hmm. obviously, since there's a great need for, you know, we sort of functioned as substitutes in a way, like in the eyes of the district, like in terms mm-hmm. of pay rates and no benefits, right? No health <laughs> benefits. Right. However, what was asked of us was sort of egregious in terms of like what we were doing. And there were some really cool perks with the job, you know, that I got to teach visual art and I didn't have to assess, mm-hmm. right? Which I think is in a way, like I didn't get into teaching in the public schools to assess kids. Like that's not mm-hmm. my, my, right. my MO, but you know, it's a part of my capacity and job. So I do mm-hmm. it. However, going back to the visiting teacher thing, I also got to come in for the day at a site. I ended up probably going to about 15 different sites in San Diego Unified. So I got a good, I had just moved to San Diego. So I really got to learn and know about San Diego through that job. And I got to leave it, you know, when I left, Mm -hmm. there was no, none of that traditional, like from what I was used to coming from Chicago, you, you clock out at three 30, but you laugh because you're like, why am I even punching out? Because I know I'm going to have two hours worth of lesson planning and grading when I get home. Mm hmm. It was when I had this visiting teacher position, I also co-currently was working a second job at a grocery store. And it was during that period that I actually had time to create a body Mm -hmm. of work because I got to leave the schoolwork at school during that time when I was part-time and doing visiting teaching, which in Mm -hmm. a way it was, I mean, the, because we were actually required to be certified for that position, the classroom teachers left. They actually had PLC. It was actually a great Mm -hmm. way to not only provide the students with with art experiences and there was like a dance teacher that would come in as well and music and theater mm-hmm. the classroom teachers got planning time which if you've ever been in the capacity of teaching yeah you know that collaboration is oh. necessary it's a necessary part of your craft and mm-hmm. it had its pitfalls 
in a way, because a lot of it had to do with, I was like, I, so I'm single, you know, unmarried. Well, I'm in a relationship, but (laughs) I'm unmarried, you know, single to the law. Right. Right. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, you know, and I moved to California and didn't really know anyone. And anyway, long story short, I couldn't, I was like, how am I going to survive on part-time work here in Southern California? Like, (laughs) I, you know, I don't have that safety blanket or any kind of Mm. extra income. So that's when I continued to work at Whole Foods at the time. But uh, yeah, I just wanted to get your opinion on that because it's really fascinating if we're thinking about workers' rights and and Mm. legitimizing and funding, funding art education Mm. through the public school system, you know, because a lot of them are outsourcing their art education to these organizations. Yeah. And in a way, you know, I'm happy that at least the students are getting some sort of art, you know, but in a way, it's like what happened to funding a full-time art teacher in every elementary school? Right. That is not a reality in the public school system. Yeah. And you don't see them going and getting rid of all the English teachers and looking to a nonprofit. Oh, can you bring us just some people who know how to read? Like, (laughs) and you're like, oh my gosh. And, you know, and it's, it, I think it's this whole idea of what is the core subjects, right? This mm-hmm. language of, you know, well, these are essential, but, you know, to me, that is colonial in nature, that experts mm-hmm. know best. And it's a passion of mine to disrupt that notion mm-hmm. in my class and, and thinking, you know, about the district at large, mm-hmm. you know, who are you to say that art isn't core, because it's been for me, it saved my life. Yeah. I hated school. I still hate school. <laughs> and it's so funny because I'm a teacher, but I'm really, I'm really passionate about education. Hmm. It's interesting though. I hear, I feel like I hear that really often that so many of the teachers I've spoken to really struggled with school and just never enjoyed it, had a lot of trouble. You want to make it different. Yeah. Yeah. Like I've heard this again and again, wanting to help students that they see themselves in. If it wasn't for art class or rugby, I played rugby Mm. in high school. Yeah. I would have never gone to school. Mm. I was miserable. There's something about, it's just, it always felt so unnatural to me and very, you know, gearing people for the industrial revolution, moving Mm. at the sound of bells. Mm -hmm. Like I didn't want to have anything, anything with it. Yeah. Well, you talked earlier also about assessment and it made me think kind of along that same line, the word assessment brings up ideas of like, what grade are you giving? And even these sort of rubrics and all the ways that we write down on paper, how students are progressing that really come from like, they're based in this very biased system. But When you also think about assessment, it's something we do naturally all the time as teachers. We're always like assessing our teaching, assessing each student and kind of seeing like, okay, where do they need a little help? Where are they doing really well that I can encourage? Absolutely. Yeah. So finding, you know, I guess trying to somehow bypass that system and just continue the natural assessment that's happening if you're, you know, if you're a good teacher, like you're always kind of doing that in your head without necessarily, I don't know if realizing it or just 
thinking about it and putting it down on paper. Maybe the system just wants it all on paper. (laughs) Well, in my opinion, I think the system uses assessment to inflict violence and harm on Mm. students. Yes. You know that, I mean, an F will stay with you on your transcript, right? And and that is a way, a legal document. Mm. And it's, I mean, it may be taking this to the extreme or maybe it isn't, but that's the way in which I see teachers moving like cops. Mm. It's through assessment and discipline. Mm -hmm. These systems that we create within our field are ways in which we assign judgment Right. And I've had conversations with students and talking about grades and a lot of them speak to the idea of self-worth being tied to a letter grade or a score. And, you know, we see this also proliferated with college acceptance and the increase of standardized testing. And, you know, a lot of that has to do with data and money Mm -hmm. about how the educational system has sold out to companies who are interested in student data. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of like racist practices and and things that happen with this data. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. Uh, And you talked earlier also about teachers, this sort of white saviorism and teachers not understanding the cultural sort of where their students are coming from. And they're, you know, that there's cultural things that are happening as well as just like human things. Like I am a high school student working because my family needs the money. And I was up till midnight Mm -hmm. trying to finish my homework after my part-time job. And now I'm falling asleep in your class and you're going to give me an F because of that. Instead of just saying, hey, I noticed that you seem really tired. Are you okay? Is there anything you need help with? Yeah, it's dehumanizing students and it's Mm -hmm. made it into this punitive punishment system, Mm -hmm. you know, and a step I think towards the right direction would be through standards-based grading where you are taking out participation grades, Mm. grades of behavior, grades for compliance. Mm. You know, did you just do the thing? Because a lot of the times you don't understand the barriers or obstacles that could prevent the student from doing the thing, mm. whether it's a parent signature on a syllabus or otherwise. Yeah. 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 And, you know, speaking to that gap between teachers and their students, at least mm. in the public schools, that traces back to the accessibility and availability for people of color to become teachers. Mm. Yes. You know, how our profession is dominated by cis, white, straight women. Yep. Raising my hand. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's it's not the only solution to help bolster more diversity within our field, but it's a start, you know? Yeah. And then I feel like we've been talking a lot about what are all of these problems, all of these challenges. And I want to talk about the solutions or like, what are the steps towards making this better towards maybe it has to get worse first, like dismantling all of it and fixing it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I don't know that we have those answers, but uh, yeah. (laughs) I love talking about solutions. Yes. Absolutely. It can feel so much more hopeful, right? And I think think of this Angela Davis quote that's been really inspiring me lately, which is, you have to act as if you can radically transform the world. Mm -hmm. You have to do it all the time. Mm -hmm. She's been a big inspiration for me in thinking about how how to approach the problems. And for me, and in my teaching practice slash art practice, what I'm really invested in is is creating change in the classroom first. Mm-hmm. You know, can you trust your students to take over the classroom? Can you really mm-hmm. let go? Can you really trust in the idea that experts don't know best, that you could actually learn from your students? Mm-hmm. Can you 
question the power hierarchies within the very walls that you go to every day or virtual walls, I guess, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's a start and you need to co-create those things together and build expectations and common ground, essentially creating a community. Mm -hmm. Yes. That's what I'm curious about now looking forward. And I have things that I have my students do called like the teach me anything project where they essentially we discuss like, well, what is a teacher? What qualifies someone to be a teacher? How do you know you've learned something to the point where you could teach someone else and help someone? Mm. And then we throw the question out there like, okay, well, what can you teach? What can you teach? What can you teach? And right now I have some independent study students that is sort of my like testing ground for sometimes new projects I'm developing that we're developing actually, because I need to be mindful of my language. Yes, because for me, solutions must be co-created because you have ownership in it and then you become more invested. It's like, you got to care, then you got to think, and then you got to act on it. Mm. That's kind of been my motto moving forward. In addition, I'm also a trained yoga and meditation teacher. So with the pandemic and online learning here, I've really leaned on my skills in that realm and have started my students every Monday with a mindful Monday where we focus on mindfulness practices and self-reflection and exploration using a variety of techniques of breathing, you know, embodiment exercises where students ground and then we Mm. go through guided visualizations where my students use their imaginations about various self-reflective topics and one of the things we have gone through is this idea of time travel and now that's that may sound a little out there right now but I do have to say that one of the main student concerns at least that I've taken away from what they've been telling me is that like adults don't care about teenage mental health Mm. And in a way, these Mindful Mondays centerizes student well-being, where we talk about dealing with depression and anxiety, almost mm-hmm. as unfortunately, like a normal occurrence in students who are of this age going through the collective experience of, of the pandemic. Yeah. And so we talk about how anxiety kind of makes you travel to the future, mm-hmm. right? Because you're, you're stressing out about what could happen, what could be. Mm-hmm. And depression is almost like a way that a force that pulls you to the past. Mm-hmm. And uh, then we talk about the present moment (laughs) Mm. and how sometimes that could be the scariest place to be, that third space. Totally. And then we make art about it or we journal. Mm. So the students have the option to express whatever they want to express in any way. Very like art therapy minded. Mm. And none of this gets assessed in the way that you would traditionally think about your projects. And it's interesting because I feel like some teachers might be, well, how do you get engagement if there's no, you don't have leverage? Like you got, well, you got to do this. It's because the students actually want to do what we're doing on Mindful Mondays. They see the value in it. And I ask them about it all the time. Like, what will you remember most about this course? And they always point to Mindful Mondays because mm. I think it relieves a lot of the pressures of what you produce must be judged or scrutinized. Mm. Yeah, that's so hard. <sighs> and for me, when I let go of that, notion in my own art making, that's when I really tapped in and was able to, I couldn't stop making paintings. (laughs) Mm. 
Yes. You know, that, that fear of creating, you know, the students come up with a lot of really fascinating sketches and, and musings. I ask them to meet up with their future self and to really visualize it and, and think about where they see their life headed. And they have, I, I prompt them to have conversations with their future self. And then similarly, we also go back in time and I have them sort of give counsel to themselves when they were younger. And I have them mm. imagine that younger version of them because high school students can be very nostalgic. You know, at that point, mm-hmm. I think that's the biggest difference with teaching high school students is they're, they're already jaded to the system. <laughs> you know, they're, right. they, they're, they're in mourning for, for a freer, happier sometimes version of themselves that, mm-hmm. you know, wasn't bogged down by all this responsibility and pressure that the system, you know, mm-hmm. places on them at that mm-hmm. age. Yeah, completely. Ugh. I love that conversations with the future self and then also kind of going back and yes, you're, you know, talking about this as sort of time travel is such a poetic and beautiful way to put it. But also, I feel like something that students can grab onto and take action with, mm-hmm. which is really, really helpful. I mean, I feel like this sort of leads into this idea of the portal. I keep mentioning the third space, the third space. And Mm. in terms of my most recent body of work, the portals of possibility, Mm. that idea, I originally was made aware of the symbol of a portal from students. Mm. When I was a visiting teacher working in San Diego, I was working with elementary aged children. And you know how students often talk about and depict symbols and characters from their visual diet, right? The media and images that they consume on a daily and I, I, all of a sudden, all, all my students, they'd be like, yeah, portal this, portal that. And I'm like, what do you mean portal? <laughs> you know, and they're like, yeah, Stranger Things, Minecraft, Fortnite, Rick and Morty, Skyrim. And there's actually uh, a video game named Portals. And I'm like, what? Uh, tell me more. Tell me more about this portal you speak of. Mm. And uh, it eventually evolved into this lesson where, you know, I was like, okay, I, I have this investment in expressive mark making in terms of my art practice. I've always, maybe it also has to do with me being a rugby player, but I've always been really like active and gestural with my approach to making marks. You know, I don't know if you're familiar with Matthew Barney. He was like the art art jock dude. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know, drawing restraint where he's bouncing on a trampoline with weights and he's drawing on his ceiling. <laughs> I always consider myself an art jock in a way. Mm, I and, love that. And yeah, being a rugby player. And <laughs> so I was thinking, how could I pair this expressive mark making? I had a, an expressive mark making project that I've been developing over my years as a teacher. And, you know, we kind of tap into those inner directionalities that you just kind of subconsciously have when you approach a blank page, you know, and I'll, I'll like put on a metronome you know, ting, 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 right? Like, like it has this little beat and then I instruct students to, okay, make marks to the metronome with your right arm. Okay, switch it to your non-dominant or, you know, the other side, right? The left or whatnot. And then I have them make, you know, make marks with both hands and then I make the beat go faster and faster and faster. And I have them use multiple pages of paper. And anyway, long story short, I had this lesson, right? To, how to make a portal, And in a way, you know, me thinking about this concept as an artist, I see the portal as a third space, right? It's Mm -hmm. the in-between space, the the liminal space, if you will. I was also reading Gloria Anzaldoa at the time, who is a Chicana philosopher, educator, who has a lot of work about the border. And also being in San Diego, which is a a border town, right? Mm -hmm. Tijuana. 
And I kind of put it all together and, and had students think about like the portal as a, a symbol or a metaphor for a life lesson in a way. What kind of concepts do portals bring up? And a lot of times they're seen as a door, right? Mm-hmm. And when we're in a, you know, sometimes portals can be scary, right? Like what's on the other side? Should I walk through it? Should I see? And so then it became a lot about discussing fear with students. Like, what are you afraid of? How do we conquer our fears? And we would do a series of meditations and circle discussions and journaling. And then I'd have the students, okay, make a fear portal. Mm. Draw your fears in the portal. And Mm. then so many things would come up. And, you know, I was servicing a lot of different students at the time. And so it was interesting to see the commonalities between what little kids were afraid of. And for little kids, it's very symbolic. But I would have the adults in the room also partake and they would say things about like losing my loved ones, murder, the the earth dying, you know, (laughs) and these are coming from, you know, seven year olds. Right. And then, like I'd mentioned earlier, we would shift the conversation to what will it take for us to address these fears? You know, how do we conquer them? How do we defeat them? And feel like so many of the material that's available for kids talks about the idea of the hero, you know, the, well, that's like a, an archetype, right? Yeah. yeah. A lot of superhero stuff that's really popular, you know, defeating Mm -hmm. evil, right? So they were really always down to talk about it. Mm -hmm. And then eventually, you know, the students sort of arrived at like how a big part of conquering your fears is being brave. And that means being confident. And that could also in another way, be about being sure about yourself, being safe and loving oneself, you know, thinking Mm -hmm. about love. So then I found myself talking about the kids about like, well, what is love? <laughs> ah. You know, and what do you love? Mm-hmm. What, you know, what makes you feel loved? How do we spread love? And then, so I had them then take the fear portals that we had made and I would have them in a very abstract expressionist way, take other colors and, and cover the fear mm-hmm. and create a love portal, right? Thinking about mm-hmm. what they love and transforming the marks, editing as they went, layering redrawing. Mm. And unfortunately, because of the pandemic happening, this was in early 2018, 2019, I never got to finish, but I have these dreams of having a bi-national art exchange where students from the United States exchange art with students on the other side of the border in Mexico. Mm. And we talk about fear and love. So I think just living here also too, you become very aware of the misconceptions and misunderstandings that either side has of each other. Mm-hmm. And also the great harm that borders can create mm-hmm. it in oneself and also in the physical. Yeah. Oh, so much beauty in there and amazing how you're really digging into these huge, huge concepts. But I see an element of ritual in there too. And talking about the metronome and the mark making and how that almost like, you know, in a lot of these children's books and movies and shows and stuff, there's sort of magic involved and sort of rituals that you do in order to cross Mm -hmm. through a certain portal. So this is, you know, you're doing this mark making, energetic mark making and like going to the beat. And then as you do that, you're creating this portal. Yeah, just really beautiful to picture that and hear about how you're facilitating this for students and for their families. You know, it's so fascinating because I feel like a lot of magic has been taken out of of life mm-hmm. in general. Mm-hmm. And the children that I was working with would get so activated 
whenever they were talking about magic that they would experience. And like you said, the video game, a lot of the role-playing games have you do, yes, yeah, amount of tasks or like you have to collect this and do this and then you can do this. Mm-hmm. And so I think at the basis level, they understand that. Mm-hmm. And they were, they were always down for whatever. They were like, all right, you know, they kind of <laughs> inherently understood like, okay, well, we're going to meditate and then we're going to stay in a circle and one by one, we're going to talk about these concepts. And obviously mm-hmm. you work up to that with co-creating a community. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of the work I do is on the basis of the relationship that I create with my students, as well as the environment and container that it's withheld in. But in a way that work with how to make a portal, the portal project in the classroom, when I was outside of the classroom, I was making my own portals. Mm. And that's my body of work, portals of possibility where it is a lot about ritual. You know, Mm -hmm. I think in the schools, I have to be a little careful about how I word things, you know, because I feel like there's sometimes this association with religion, I guess, with like ritual. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, that can really alarm people. But in a way, you know, I take a very dialogical approach to education. I'm very much influenced by Paulo Freire, mm-hmm. you know, pedagogy of the oppressed and thinking about how drawing on the students' experiences should really be the highlight of your approach and making space for student dialogue mm-hmm. about a lot of these large ideas because they're grappling with these questions especially at the high school level. And there's not a lot of spaces where you can just talk about things. I I do this with my high schoolers now where we start every class, every 10 minutes, sort of as like a student radio podcast show (laughs) (laughs) where I display a student submitted quote of the day, a song of the day, a question of the day. We do a meme feature, pet feature, show and tell. I love it kind of nostalgic for them, at least in the high school level, but they're into it. And uh, anyway, we start with dialogue and the the Mm -hmm. students, Mm -hmm. I started the year by me kind of always posing the big questions ranging from some very simple, like, do you prefer peanut butter and jelly sandwiches to ham sandwiches, right? (laughs) Or like Instagram or TikTok, right? Uh To questions that get them thinking creatively and really truly tapping into what they believe, like, you know, something along the lines of, why do we fall in love? Or, mm. or do you believe in aliens? <laughs> or, mm. <laughs> and now the students are submitting questions. And let me tell you, uh, like the other day in my AP studio art class, I had a student ask, is there a point to being ethical? And we had this incredible discussion about ethics mm. and the implications of certain worldviews. And it was just incredible. And I just sit mm-hmm. back and just let them talk and you know, some students are more comfortable in the chat, some jump on the audio. But at the end of the day, you need to align your practices as a teacher with what you believe. And I believe that I tell them I'm one of the biggest students in the room here. Okay, lifelong learner. Mm-hmm. And I can learn from you as much as you can learn from me. It is mutual. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I love that start with dialogue. And just talking about the importance of building relationships and building the environment first, that that has to come before you're really diving into these big topics that can be really heavy. Absolutely. Absolutely.
I would love to hear more about your work. I feel like we could just keep talking about teaching for hours and hours. (laughs) (laughs) And you've mentioned your Portals of Possibility project. I want to hear more about it. So yeah, so while I was a visiting teacher working part-time and also working in um, a grocery store, I don't know how I made some time, but I guess I had time to also be making art. And while I was teaching how to make portals with the students, I was doing my own portals at home. Mm-hmm. And the portals that I would create are one, in my mind, a continuation of the symbol of the third space, right? That inherently mm-hmm. connects to my identity as a mixed person. I have European mm-hmm. and Mexican heritage mm-hmm. as a bisexual, mm-hmm. as well as a teacher slash artist, which is, you know, in some respects, a difference in class. So often I would, you know, come home from work, right? I'd work a double. <laughs> I'd be mm-hmm. teaching in the schools and then working my service job in, at night. And then I come home and I don't know. I guess I, sometimes you got to rage. I mean, I don't have kids, so I guess I have a lot of energy. I've always been known for my energy, but yeah. And then I would just like invite some of my friends who, like I had mentioned, you know, in the service industry, they're all creatives, right? Musicians, mm-hmm. people are, who paint and do all sorts of different things. You know, they just come over and we chill and I would invite them to make the portal with me you know, as an extension of this idea of co-creation. And the only stipulation, like they're really, like, you know how sometimes with artworks, the artist can impose sort of, I guess, rules or an approach to a work. Like, I'm only going to do this, or I'm only going to draw in this way. You see that sometimes with in abstraction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, completely. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to just paint with my nose <laughs> or, or I see, I think about Janina and Tony's butterfly kisses. I'm going to only put mascara on my eyelashes and kiss the canvas with my eyelashes like a thousand times, you know? I love that. The, yeah. These are the works that inspire me. And anyway, the only stipulation that I had kind of thought of as I'd be making portals with my friends is that it just kind of has to sort of be circular at the end. <laughs> It, you know, but e- even then, I really tried to approach the canvas as I would my life. And what I mean by that is, I was going through a lot of transformation, I'd say personally, when I came out to California, I feel like anytime anyone makes a big move, you kind of recreate yourself a little bit, you can sort of abandon the old preconceived notions of who you were, or who, you know, were known to be. Mm-hmm. And uh, coming out here, felt like a new person and in my own life, trying to make choices and, and live an intentional life where I wasn't preoccupied with what other people thought of me, I guess, and really Mm -hmm. tapping into what made me happy. And those personal leaps and bounds I was making in terms of my self-concept, I wanted to translate that into the canvas by if you made a mark that you thought looked bad, like whatever, just keep layering, keep going, keep going. (laughs) go crazy, really, and and tapping into my, I guess, really physical nature. Because in the end, you can always fix a mistake. Yes, absolutely. And that's, that's something I tell my students all the time. I was kind of taking, my, I was actually living what I taught, I guess. Uh, <laughs> like, I say this yes. to students all the time, like, oh, don't worry, you made a mistake, just rework it or, you know, and, and for some reason, it was just, I had finally embodied the lesson. I think there's a difference, like you can kind of... Mm talk about what you know, but until you've lived it, Mm. I don't think you really have too strong of ground to stand on. Yeah. And I I feel like this connects back to 
the way you talked about leading that project with students where they ended up creating these like fear portals and then transforming them into love portals that they're, you know, again, this like layering and covering up something, Mm -hmm. changing one thing. Yeah, that you can always continue this transformation. Yeah, that I mean, to me was the journey of self transformation and self acceptance, ultimately. And I think as someone who has, like, I think growing up, I didn't really fit in with any crowd because, Mm -hmm. you know, like when I was around my white friends, I didn't feel as white as them. When I was around my brown mm-hmm. friends, I didn't feel as brown as them. Mm-hmm. When I was around my straight friends, I felt a lot more different as a mm-hmm. queer person. And then when I'm with my queer friends, I felt self-conscious of also liking men. And, mm-hmm. you know, at a yeah. certain point, I had to learn, like, you are worthy. The space you take up is worthy. Mm-hmm. And it's not in either category. You're, you're your own thing, Jess. Yes. Ugh. Yeah, you are worthy in that liminal space in that like in between. And I'm maybe this is too visual or or metaphorical. Like I'm picturing these walls like closing in around you and you just pushing against them and like bulging them out to make your space bigger. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. And and I, I come to that question a lot in my work. Like What life lessons can we learn as individuals and as a society from the metaphor of a portal? How can we embrace liminality as a tool of resistance in a binary world? You know, that to me is what definitely guides my art practice. That's beautiful. I want to just sit with that. (laughs) And it's been a long time coming, but it was it took a lot of work to get here. Because I feel like just having to just jump straight into teaching when I was 18, that that blocked me as a creative. Mm. You know, I felt like a blocked creative up until that point when I had that little bit of extra time and, and energy to devote to my art practice. I was able to come into myself. Yeah, beautiful. You know, when you're a blocked art teacher, like, oh my goodness, that's honestly, uh, it's, it's a miserable existence. I, I felt it. I lived it where you you come home from a full day of work and you are around and facilitating creativity happening. You get home and you just don't have the life force sometimes Mm. to be able to devote that same care and attention to yourself. I think a big part of my cultural upbringing was to put others before myself. Mm -hmm. And I had to unlearn that in a way. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that's something we're taught as women, especially that care for others comes first. Mm-hmm. But then there's the metaphor I hear all the time or the, you know, the whole like airline thing of like, you know, put on your own oxygen mask first. Uh, but that has so much meaning. And yet until you live it and learn it and embody it, then I think you understand. But, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of days there's a lot of people who talk the talk, but don't walk the walk. Yeah. And that's a systemic problem. Mm-hmm. You know, we see that as evidence through our politicians through the supposed quote unquote change makers Mm. of the country. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel myself struggling there too, you know, being, you know, I'm a white educator and grew up sort of middle class. Like my mom was a teacher. My parents were not together. So Mm -hmm. some struggle there, but like not on the level of some of the students that I've had. And now I'm married to a Latino and, you know, trying to navigate my daughter having these dual identities and Mm -hmm. what that means for her as well. 
Yeah. But I definitely see myself struggling and and struggling with this idea of being a change maker or somebody who doesn't always or like can't figure out always how to walk the walk. And and being a parent of a mixed child, inherently she has her own identity that is different from either yours or your husband's. Yeah. If you think about it. And for me, just being connected to other mixed people really also was a part of becoming mm-hmm. more holy myself. Mm-hmm. Because I, the the Mexican Americans in my family, you know, were very much affected by assimilation. Mm-hmm. And yeah. my family lost the language in efforts to be to appear more white. And moving to Southern California, being so close to the motherland, if you will. Yeah. You know, really, like I met some really proud Mexican Americans who found out that I was mixed, that I had Mexican heritage, and they were like, be proud, you know, and I was immersed in Chicano culture moving out here. And I've learned so much more about myself and It's been an incredible, beautiful journey being able to connect with that part of my family and my own history and also understanding a lot of things like just how how I was raised. It kind of came all full circle like, oh, that's where that came from. (laughs) I feel like in particularly a lot of Mexican-American women, you know, I'm thinking also about Gloria Anzaldoa, her work and what she speaks about in terms of having to care and mother and a lot of times that flattens women and has them only seen as one thing, always having to be selfless, always thinking about the collective before the self. But as I've learned, you know, you need to hold a balance of the individual and the collective. The third space, right? Yes. And I'm I'm not this is like I'm not a centerist, but I'm I'm something I've learned is that again, thinking about this idea how is liminality a tool of resistance in a binary world? Like, how can we take the collective knowledge of all these different identities intersecting to ultimately rise above the the idea that there's two sides to everything? Because I feel like that begets a lot of problems, mm-hmm. a lot of pain and harm in any mm-hmm. sense of the world. Yeah. Yeah. The grays that like encompass most of the world. It's not just, yeah, there's not a duality. It's not just black and white. Like everything is some shade of gray. It's so, things are way more complex than Mm -hmm. they appear. And I feel like a lot of the forces that be or, you know, the the masterclass, the the billionaires, however you want to label them, they benefit from this space not being liberated. Yeah. And even thinking of the benefits of the 1% and how this dual, this political system that we have really, we're encouraged to think of us versus them. And we're split Mm -hmm. along this line. And Mm -hmm. yeah, that it's, you know, one side is good and one side is bad. And, you know, depends which side you're on, what you think that (laughs) that is, that there's no room in the middle. Yeah. I love this idea thinking of like, how do we how do we make that room? And that that image is coming up in my head again of like pushing those walls apart, like opening that space. You're giving me some ideas because I'm like, I love lifting weights. So like, yeah. <laughs> yes, I, I, I'm retired from rugby now, but I do still, I enjoy lifting weights. It helps me be in my body. Mm. <sighs> that would be so fascinating to 
create sort of a sculptural performance mm-hmm. with this with this mental image yes that do it. Up, you know and actually like you know flexing on people right and mm-hmm. <laughs> but oh I love that and I I mean I love that in how that also uh, in some ways I feel like speaks to femininity and this idea of women are these fragile creatures that <laughs> oh yeah our strength is taken away Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've definitely always, I mean, I think to my own, like, sexual orientation, sexual identity, when it comes mm-hmm. to, like, I've always been a, a more masculine woman, a very mm-hmm. a strong woman. I, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, related to a lot of young men in the way that when they're growing up, they just needed a channel for their aggression. And I was angry when I was young, you know, and rugby, like, rugby changed my life. It was crucial in empowering me to take up space, to be strong. When you're a young woman and you learn how to tackle somebody (laughs) to the ground, Uh, you know, stop them from moving. Like you walk into a room differently. Like you'll walk into an interview differently, knowing that your your body can (laughs) destroy. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. I'm exaggerating, but it's a tough sport. It's full contact, no padding. Learning how to use your body in that way definitely had some psychological consequences for the good, you know, in in making me really appreciate the things that my body did and not necessarily about what my body looked like. Because yes, the pervasive message for young women is to take up the least amount of space possible, (laughs) you know, and a very early age, I... I was like, that's not for me. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, take up space. I love that. Mm-hmm. Well, I would love to get into our last couple questions. Yeah. So one, what are you curious about right now? Hmm. I'm curious about power, power hierarchies, and honestly, the very institution of school. Mm-hmm. To me, I think that as teachers, if we want to see systemic change happen at large levels we need to start with the micro mm-hmm. right trust your students think about and have some sort of i guess metacognition as to what's happening in your class and have your students question it too mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. absolutely how can you keep pushing at some of the things that we sort of do unconsciously always yeah i feel like this speaks to, you know, uncovering your unconscious biases, but also just taking a moment and thinking about the things that you sort of naturally unconsciously do that are really positive. Like, how can we harness that and and do it more? Mm-hmm. Yeah. As a teacher, I think you have to break the rules because you're, you're ultimately the buffer between the, the state and your students. Yes. And you need to be filtering the stuff that is harmful. Mm-hmm. And you need to create more of what is what is human. Yeah, that's such a powerful idea that you and so true that you're the buffer between these systems of power and your students, your kids that you're working with. And they're still kids, even if they're in high school. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, I have <laughs> just a kind of fun, silly question. Mm-hmm. What is your favorite food? Mm, favorite food. <laughs> You know what? My go-to is always a torta. Mm. There's this place in San Diego, Señor Mangos, that has the best veggie torta. You got to get it with chipotle mm. mayo and the, the pickled jalapenos, eat carrots. 
Yeah, they have, they use panela. It's a really, really good sandwich, really filling. It's homey to me. Yes, I'm going to say a torta. Mm, I love <laughs> it. Always down for a torta. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, so much good food down there. I mean, I guess we've we've got some good food in, up here in LA too. But. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's quite uh, similar too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, is there anything we missed? Anything I should have asked but didn't get to? Hmm. There is this question where mm-hmm. it mentions like any BIPOC artists that you've shared that you mm-hmm. felt were impactful. And I did want to make a little comment concerning that in education currently, because of the events of the summer, you know, there there is this push for re-examining the canon of artists that you show, right? Yeah. To make it a more anti-racist curriculum. Mm-hmm. However, I feel that there's definitely a difference between multiculturalism and true liberatory education. Mm-hmm. And it's all well-intended, right? The well-intended of, you know, re-examination of your curriculum. But just in my opinion, I think multiculturalism fails to question what I keep talking about, this idea of the power structures in your own classroom. And you'll mm-hmm. continue to oppress your students and only perpetuate the colonial agenda of control and disempowerment if you just simply think that representation is adequate mm-hmm. in truly mm-hmm. changing the system. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I think maybe is, do you think I need to reword that or adjust? Like I've been sort of trying to shift these questions. And as you, as you saw, I definitely did not stick to my questions. Yeah. Oh, no, no. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, it's something I mean, I think it's important that we're always kind of critical of what we're saying, what we're doing, the questions we're asking, and even here in this podcast space, like what, Mm -hmm. how do I need to change? What am I doing that can be harmful, even unintentionally? Mm -hmm. Um, And I completely agree with the point you're making that, yeah, that is like maybe a very beginning starting point. If you've been teaching all dead white guys, like shifting that (laughs) is like a little baby step. (laughs) Wake up, people! I hope at this point, you know. But uh, I, if I, if I can speak to the profession, mm-hmm. people are at all different stages of this, yeah, transformation. But if we're if we're looking to the people who've been doing the work, mm-hmm. you know, your position as a teacher in and of itself can be harmful, and you need to realize mm-hmm. that and and think about power. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. And how do you give up power in your classroom? Yeah. I right. think that's, that's a question I've been asking myself. Like, how do I shift the, the power dynamic in the classroom? Mm-hmm. If, we're, if we're thinking about true liberation here, and that's what makes it dangerous. That's what makes folks like Angela Davis a terrorist to the United mm. States government. Mm. She was a teacher who was put in prison <sighs> because she questioned yeah. the system. As soon as you bring that up like fear immediately comes up yeah that's what uh, i'm talking about we gotta address fear too (laughs) it's like oh you know making slow moves so that that i don't want that to happen to me like (laughs) then 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 the self-care kicks in like the selfish selfishness (laughs) almost well yeah Yeah. i mean it takes a Mm self-examination you know are you going to be on the side of the oppressor are you going to be on Mm -hmm. the side of the people yeah yeah, we had a workshop with Alicia Mernick. She led a workshop for this Art Educators Lounge community meetings that I've been co-hosting. Oh once yes, a month. I've seen those. Yeah, 
Yeah. So she led one sharing an identity mapping project that she does uh, with yes. students. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. So important. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I have but... my AP students do that. And I model by showing them mine and all the different identities and roles that we hold. Absolutely. Uh, yes. Yeah, same sort of idea. So great. But I think I was bringing that up because there was a lot of talk about how do we approach this? We're working within these systems, but I have the backing of my organization, even the schools I work with, the admin is totally on board with me, at least bringing up these topics and pushing my way forward. Whereas some of the teachers that had joined us were in schools and situations where if they even mention the words social justice or brought in identity as a topic, their admin, their parents, or even their students would give some pushback. So we tried to talk about what can you do in that situation? Like, where do you go? Where do you start this work? (laughs) Through self-examination and the cultivation of empathy is what comes to mind. I mean, I think by and large, our society has been robbed of empathy. Mm, Yeah. You know, we've been dehumanized on a collective scale where we feel disconnected from things, you know, and like I had mentioned, it's this fine balance, right, of the collective and the individual. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people get afraid when they hear words like socialism or communism. And in the same way, it's not going to be true liberation if just a different oppressor takes over (laughs) and then just puts forth their agenda. Right. So I'm in it for thinking about liberation would acknowledge the individual as well as the collective in regard to us having the ability to have an individual experience, right? We are the self, but then Mm -hmm. inherently we are all connected through being earthlings, right? (laughs) To being a part of this world Uh, of the trees and the soil and the water and the air. (laughs) Ah, That's beautiful. I love the reconnecting with your own body. Absolutely. Overarchingly, the society is too mental. We're all Mm -hmm. up in our minds. And we've, especially in the United States, been really cut off from our bodies in a lot of ways. Just think about the way in which your body is when you're in school, right? Like, yeah, policing bodies. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Yeah. And that is where, you know, we have some egregious racist practices Mm -hmm. kind of go underneath the radar to Mm -hmm. some, but then to others, it's like, you know, the most devastating thing, right? The policing Mm -hmm. of bodies. And so often the school system aims to police the bodies and Mm. (sighs) that could be the first step is thinking about, yeah, like (laughs) how are your students' bodies in your classrooms? Like in terms of what are they doing? And with hybrid learning, let me tell you, there's a lot of dissatisfaction with when students return to class, they were expecting one thing when just for the sheer feasibility of having like 20 students online and five in in person, everyone's got to be on that laptop still. Mm -hmm. You know, even though you're in the same room as your student, they're watching you through a screen. Yeah. And then I think about the power we have as teachers to let go of some of the common rules. You know, you have to be sitting at your desk, your hands are folded nicely and like no hats allowed, including, you know, yeah. All of those things, no hoodies, all you know, whatever. We police how they dress, we police how they move. But then thinking about how the pandemic also shifted, you know, like you, yes, you do actually have to wear the mask. Like I can't loosen up on that one. More <laughs> and, policing of bodies, and yeah. And on one hand, I understand, especially in communities of color, where COVID, the effects of COVID have been devastating. Devast- yeah. 
Mm. you know, and, and maybe it's about finding a balance. And it's interesting because in the name of safety and security, historically, the government has made a lot of move towards infringing a lot of one's freedoms. And I think as educators, we would be remiss if we didn't consider these implications in how we are apparatus, the state, you know, continuing some of these things. So I think ultimately it's about self-reflection and thinking about what really matters and, mm-hmm. and being ethical. And, and like I mentioned before, you are the, how did I put it? The barrier between you and the state with your students. So you should have your yeah. own conscience in terms of this. And I would expect the same thing for police officers, right? Mm. Do we trust our police officers to not enact on laws that they view as unjust? Mm. I think as teachers, we need to be asking ourselves these same things. Yeah. Can we really be that buffer and stand up when we feel we need to? Right. Like failing students in the pandemic. Mm -hmm. I think that's something as a teacher, you need to put your foot down and say, I am not failing any student during the pandemic because that is a form of child abuse. Saying I refuse. And then one thing that came up in that discussion with taking a stand like that, that there's an aspect of how far can I go before losing my job? And am I willing to take that risk? Am I able to do that? You know, if you're, Mm -hmm. if that's your sole income and you're reliant on that, like where it's hard working in a system where you don't agree with things that are going on, but you also have your own mm-hmm. livelihood and your own, like the fear of repercussions against yourself. <laughs> that's my, <laughs> that's my whole situation here. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can you change the system from within? Right. How do we do that? Like, how far can we push? I guess that's what we're always thinking. And again, that picture of like pushing the walls, how far can we bulge them out before they crack and before someone notices that crack and gets angry with us? (laughs) Exactly. And I think having faith in your community Mm -hmm. is a big part of that. The strength Mm -hmm. of the community, the strength of mutual aid. You know, when Angela Davis was incarcerated, her community had her back because they knew she was being used as a symbol, as a lesson by the state. Mm. To any dissenters out there. Uh, So much to think about. (laughs) I know. I'm just kind of in contemplation right now. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anyone that you would want to thank or give sort of a shout out to? Definitely my family. If it wasn't for them, I wouldn't have what I have today. And I wouldn't have gone through what I've gone through. And for that, I'm so thankful for the lessons and their appreciation. So my mom, my dad, my sister, Rachel, Veronica, Mm. all my friends and my partner, Jarrell and my schools, all of my students, absolutely. Mm. Hands down. Shout out Morse High School. Go Tigers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. Yeah, yeah. I consider myself blessed. Every person and human being that I've ever come into contact with, I've learned something from, whether they're aware of it or not. Mm. So that I am thankful for. Amazing. And then where can listeners connect with you online? My website, www.justforgowski.com. And I'm also on Instagram at Ms. Green underscore underscore is where you can find my work and, and contact me. I see and live the power of co-creation as something necessary for changing the world. And a part of that is collaborating and networking. So this is open call to anyone who was inspired or does work that's in relationship to anything that I'm doing. Let's connect. Reach out. 
I'd love to hear from you. Yes. And I love seeing those connections. Like that's, Mm -hmm. that's what this is meant for. That's what this is all about. Like connect, connect. Yeah. You've been with this platform, a grand connector. And that again, just thank you so much for creating this platform. Yeah, no, I love seeing that and hearing about that. And, you know, I feel like it's also selfish for me. Like I want to connect with people and learn from all of these amazing educators like yourself. Mm -hmm. So yeah, thank you so much for this. I love this conversation. Uh, Thank you so much, Jess. Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can reach me at Teaching Artist Podcast on Instagram or Teaching Artist Podcast at gmail.com. Who do you want to hear from? Please share your recommendations of teaching artists. And if you loved this episode, please subscribe, leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts, and follow me. It really makes a big difference. Thank you. Thank you.